0: everybody, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen in on our Hilco Global Smarter Perspective podcast. I'm your host, Steve Katz, and if you're joining us for the first time, we're glad you did. We have a great discussion today. Return guest Ian Fredericks is joining us on the podcast. He's the president of Hilco Consumer Retail, and he's here for what I would say is a very timely discussion, given the unnerving factors that are at work in the U.S. economy right now. So get ready. We'll be talking about what he and his team are seeing in terms of consumer demand and factors that are influencing product availability, buying power, and the consumer mindset overall. should be very interesting because it always is when you join us, Ian. Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having
1: me, Steve. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be back.
0: Well, we're glad to have you. And, uh, you know, it seems consumer demand is on the upswing. I'll just cite a few Figures here for Q1 of this year, we've got personal consumption up 3.7% versus 1% in Q4 of last year. Demand for goods up by 6.5%, demand for services up 2.3%, all pretty good. But then at the same time, we've got GDP growth slowing and the potential threat of a recession. So a lot of factors, both positive and some potentially negative, that are weighing on the consumer demand right now including debt ceiling discussions, which I think are ongoing right now as we speak here today. So let's address them one at a time, starting with consumer demand. What, you, what are you observing there?
1: Sure, it's been really interesting to see the resilience of the consumer. And you know the numbers, the one thing I'm not sure of is whether those are inflation adjusted or not, but either way, it's, you know, it's nice to see consumer demand remain strong. The consumer is certainly the driver of the American economy and, to a certain extent, the world economy. And so seeing positive numbers is certainly better than seeing negative numbers. What's interesting to me is that the consumer continues to be resilient in some areas that are surprising. And you'd expect them to be resilient in grocery and food-related areas because they need they need to be. I mean, frankly, people need food. And so it's not a surprise that they would be resilient there, but they're also staying resilient in what I'd call more consumer discretionary, you know, around apparel and, uh you know, as well as, you know, restaurants and more of your exper- experiential type retail. So, you know, overall, the consumer has stayed resilient. And, you know, and I think, What we're going, what's going to be interesting to see is whether that resilience can last through the rest of the year. You know, as, you know, certain of the COVID related relief packages peel off and more and more of that, of the money that was pumped into the economy, you know, filters its way through. Will the consumer, you know, be able to continue that level of resilience? We'll see. I've been surprised so far. So I'm skeptical about predicting the future because The consumer certainly has been a lot more resilient than I thought they would be at this point.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah, A lot of pressure on uh, the pocketbook right now from many standpoints, even just sort of thinking out to the future and what's going to happen. I think uh, it is somewhat surprising that you're seeing that level of resilience, but uh, we'll check back in on that in the next few months and see where it stands with you. Okay, let's move to supply chain. So obviously supply chain has been a problem since the start of covid uh, at various levels it's some easing somewhat right now what what are your thoughts there
1: Yeah you you definitely continue to see easing in the supply chain you don't have the build up at the port you know the time from you know when a ship leaves the port overseas and arrives is more normalized container prices have been coming down you know what you haven't really seen are the savings associated with all of the supply chain disruption that happened sort of filtering through? I did mention you are seeing it on container pricing, and that's true. That's one area where you're definitely starting to see savings relative to the peak. You know what you're not, where you're not seeing savings is more on the FedEx, UPS, that sort of last mile delivery. You're not seeing that level of savings. They continue to implement uh, surcharges. They continue to not guarantee certain types of deliveries that they did, you know, pre-COVID. So you're definitely still seeing an increased cost there. You definitely, your labor inputs into the supply chain continue to be very high. You haven't seen that relief in terms of, you know, some of the, you know, wage growth that you saw and a little bit of contraction. So you do have a little bit of a mixed bag here. The supply chain is definitely running something closer to what it ran, you know, pre-COVID. Uh, what you're also seeing though, and what you'll continue to see is more of that near shoring or, um, you know, in terms of like Mexico, Canada, or areas that are closer, at least to the United States and onshoring where it actually manufacturing in the United States is going to grow. And as we'll talk about in one of the later topics, as you continue to see manufacturing and near shoring growth, you're going to need to expand the facilities that you have both in the United States and in some of our major trade partners you know, that are near store, primarily being Mexico and Canada, by building out more of an infrastructure, you're going to have a large demand for labor, you're going to see increased labor costs. You're likely to continue to see uh, inflation as a result of some of that supply chain near storing onshoring.
0: Yeah, and it, it is interesting and obviously, you know, those input costs, um, you know, even even though some of those costs are actually coming down, you know, they're not being really passed along. And I think consumers are seeing that too in the pricing of goods and, uh, you know, they get to the store and everything in the grocery store is higher priced. Uh, They get to the, uh, you know, buy apparel and apparel continues to be relatively high priced. So I think it's trembling. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point and I'm glad you clumped it up. You're not Seeing a reduction in pricing. So you're really still seeing that inflationary pressure, but even more so, and this is one of the things that absolutely blows my mind about the way that the food companies have dealt with these rising input costs. You know, they choose not to necessarily raise the price, but instead they actually will reduce the, the amount or the quantity that you get. So they'll you know, change the size of the box so it looks different. Maybe instead of being as wide, it's now taller and, you know, narrower because there's less product actually in the box in terms of food. So that way they can say they're still charging the same price. You know, they're naive to think that the consumer doesn't recognize it. The consumer absolutely does recognize the change. And for consumers that are really you know, living on a tight budget, it's having a massive impact on them because they know how much quantity they got for the price. And they know that they're now getting less quantity for the same price. So, you know, it's the nuanced ways that manufacturers are dealing with it that I think more than anything frustrates the consumer and really, you know, isn't in my view, a long-term benefit. They'd be better off, you know, raising prices a little bit because the consumer expects that and giving them the same quantity. But you're absolutely right. Prices are not coming down for the consumer. Uh even though they're staying stagnant, they're still getting less.
0: Yeah. It's almost you almost feel like maybe there's a psychology to it where I could still buy the same crackers that I love to buy. Whereas if the you know if the prices were raised incrementally i wouldn't be able to buy those crackers i'd have to buy something else so i can still get what i want even though i'm getting a little bit less so i i kind of suck it up and buy it anyway it's uh well, that's
1: a good way of looking at it maybe yeah. that psychology is more helpful i hadn't looked at it from that perspective
0: yeah well that's my, that's my own interpretation so not scientific all right let's keep going so um you touched on inflation. Obviously, it seems the Fed's efforts are paying off to some degree, but clearly we have this, you know, danger that existed from the start with the rate hikes, which is the risk of, um, you know, further inflation and recession. So can you talk a little bit about, um, so sort of those interconnected factors and where you think we'll land from a consumer demand and purchasing power standpoint moving ahead?
1: Yeah, I absolutely don't agree that the Fed's efforts have been paying off. I think. What you're seeing in the numbers is exactly what I've been predicting for over a year. You're not going to see the same level of increase this year as you did last year, same time period, because last year, you would have factored in inflation between 2020 to 2021, 2021 to 2022. So, from an inflation standpoint, and it's going to sound weird that they comped inflation, but if you were comping your inflation year over year, you would expect inflation right now to be lower because the comps over which they're at at the same time period last year were the highest they had been. So when I look at inflationary numbers right now, I look at them and say, yeah, I expected this to come back down. Last year, the month of May and June were some of the highest inflation we had ever seen both month over month and year over year. And I don't think people are looking at it accurately because they're not looking at it in the aggregate and saying, okay, let's, let's start back in 2020 when the Fed started printing trillions of dollars of money to to support the economy so we didn't go into a depression. And let's look at what the 2020 to, you know, call it April, March, April 2020, all the way to March, April, 2023, inflation is what that aggregate inflationary number is. And it's, you know, at this point, it's got to be in the, and I haven't done the math in a few months, but it's mid-teens to high 20% inflation over a three-year period. That's. Same thing, except on a more, on a greater basis, it's happening in eight, you know, April of 2023, May of 2023, and June of 2023. I mean, June of 2023 last year, I think was, if my memory is correct, was over 9% inflation year over year. If you put another five on top of that, you're at 14, and then take into consideration what happened between 2020 and 2021. And you're around 20% inflation that the consumer has experienced between you know the pandemic, and now then that is, you know, that's what we would typically experience over a ten-year period. So, while inflation is coming down, it's not coming down because I believe the Fed interest rate hikes have impacted it. If they're having an impact, it's nominal, and I think you're hearing that from the Fed as well. The interest rate increases that the Fed has done to try to tamp down inflation largely won't be felt until later this year, early next year, in my opinion, is the earliest.
0: So do we see uh, an easing of those policies now or no?
1: I think you're definitely going to see an easing in the policies because, you know, but I don't think you're going to see the reversal. So I think you're going to see an easing in the sense that maybe we have another quarter point increase the next month. And then maybe the Fed takes a hiatus for a few months. But they're definitely looking at this month over month. And then what you're going to, but you know, for markets to be speculating that the Fed is going to reverse course on inflation, they're not going to reverse course later this year, in my opinion, barring some you know major things in the you know in the economic picture. So you know, if you had oh you know the breakout of a war, that would be a major thing. If you had another pandemic, that would be a major thing. But barring something major like that happening. I don't see the Fed reversing course this year and starting to reduce rates. You know, like, as I was saying, I, I think the Fed knows what's happened so far is not a result of the rate increases that they've had. They, you're not seeing that trickle through the economy yet. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right, well, good perspective. And it's a good way to a good way to look at it. And maybe not so much what you're hearing in the news. So that's why we talked to you. Um Lastly, Ian, uh you know, we've seen some notable store closings uh last year, late last year, and already this year with Bed Bath and Beyond. And I know uh you and Hilco are actively involved in some of the uh inventory disposition efforts for Bed Bath and Beyond. How are you advising retailers and their lenders who are in a stressed or distressed mode right now? What what seems to be the best course of action?
1: Sure. What's been interesting, I think, about the store closing so far is you definitely have a fairly large amount of stores that are closing, but not necessarily in the first quarter so far. But not necessarily a lot of retailers that are closing stores. And as and these were some of the playbook that you know Bed Bath and Beyond tried to roll out, you know from the beginning of this year until they actually had to file for bankruptcy. And, you know, I know they're still working on trying to uh, salvage aspects of the business and they're marketing them as a going concern. And we're very hopeful that they're able to get that uh, and able to sell aspects of the business and keep them going as a going concern. And to the extent they can't, we'll obviously continue to, you know, help out with the store closing. But you leading up to, The bankruptcy, we worked with them on trying to come up with an inventory procurement facility where they could source additional inventory from third parties that they wanted to source. You know, that's the solution that we offer. We actually, you know, signed all the documents and I know they did a press release on it and, you know, and then shortly thereafter, we ended up not closing on the facility, not by our choice, but by theirs because they realized they had run out of time by the, by the point at which they were able to implement that facility. So, Looking at alternate ways to deal with your uh, inventory procurement, and you know the facilities that we offer typically work really well when you have a your factor stop factoring receivables for your suppliers or trade insurance companies stop doing uh, stop doing trade insurance uh, on on the receivables. So those are an area where we can be helpful. Get you the inventory that you want, the inventory that your consumers want to put into stores. You know, that's one thing that you should be looking at. Don't wait till the last minute. You know, we can look at the bed, bath and beyond situation as maybe it just took a little bit too long to get there. Uh, and if we talk about those earlier and we can get them in place, uh, so that retailers, you know, retailers can access them. I'd be taking a hard look at your appraisal. You know, appraisals were down. Appraised values were down during the, you know, since the pandemic, but they were down, not necessarily because the intrinsic value of the inventory wasn't there, but because a lot of our competitors use the formulas and they adjust appraisals off of formulas and they're not taking into account, you know, the true intrinsic value of that inventory. So I think getting a hard look, maybe a second opinion of your appraisal, that's something that would be really important, you know, to do at this point in time. You know, make sure that you are focusing on your stores, you know, the big, tiny objects that everyone's been tasting for years has been omni channel and e-commerce. And don't get me wrong, they're important. But at the same time, the vast majority of most retail sales still happen in stores. And for retailers, they also still happen in through their stores. So I would take a hard look and I apologize. I'm doing this from home. The landscape was sewed up. So <laughs> talking about the wraparound noise, it's a, you know, it's a, it's like going back in time to the early COVID days. Exactly. Um, You know, so uh, you know, focus on your stores. Focus on your frontline employees. Right, there's still a challenge for getting labor in stores, and you don't want attrition. You want your employees to be happy. Uh, Focus on them. You know, really lean into them. They're the they're the people who have the direct connection to your customer, and it is critical that they're happy. They feel empowered. They feel supported. Because the better your frontline store employees feel, the better the customer experience is going to be, the more you're going to sell. So I would say those three things, uh, you know, the making sure that you have the facilities in place to be able to procure the inventory that you want, that you need, you know, focusing on your store um, and your store, you know, and then also focusing on your your frontline store employees. And one of the ways that you can actually help them too is by putting, you know, technology in their hands that help make their daily routine better. You know, that's something else that we've also, you know, rolled out. We have a, a platform called Restore for Resale that, you know, really makes the frontline team members' lot daily lives better. They're able to focus more with the customer. They're happier, morale's up and I'd encourage you to look at things like that
0: too. Yeah, and we, you and I have talked about that. We should we should do another podcast and f- and focus in um, on restore for retail because it is very interesting and it ta- and it is a great tool at least as as I understand now having having looked at it for uh, keeping uh, those store uh, employees motivated and feeling feeling part of uh, the greater whole and giving them the tools that they need to succeed. So let's uh, let's let's plan to do that. I would love to do that. I, that sounds great, Steve. Appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, listen, as usual, terrific insights. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be some follow-up questions from people listening in today. So could you just provide your uh, contact info so they can reach out?
1: Sure. I can always be reached on my mobile. It's uh, Eric at 847 687 And my email is fredericks at hilcoglobal.com. That's I-F-R-E-D. E R I C K S at H I L C O G L O B A L dot com.
0: All right, Ian. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, Come back and join us again soon. We'll pick up that next topic we talked about. I definitely will. Looking forward to it, Steve. Thank you. All right. And listeners, as always, we hope that this Smarter Perspective podcast provided you with at least one key takeaway you can put to good use in your business or share with a colleague or client to help make them that much more successful moving forward. And if you found today's discussion insightful, be sure to check out our library of other podcasts. You can find them at hilcoglobal.com forward slash smarter dash perspectives or on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, for Hilco Global, I'm Steve Katz.